Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. I'm very excited to introduce my guest for today's show. It's Jitu Mahatani, who is a Senior Vice President and Managing Director of International Operations at HubSpot. HubSpot is a household name, and even though it was not born in Europe, they're one of the most successful companies globally. And Jitu was the force behind the global part of HubSpot. In the last nine years, Jitu and his team have grown HubSpot's operations to seven countries, a customer base across 120 countries, and propelled international revenue component to 40% of HubSpot's overall company revenues. So I'm very excited to learn more about international expansion from Jitu. Welcome, Jitu. Thank you, Anita. Super excited to be a part of your show. Excellent. When they say you are managing director of international operations, what are you responsible for at HubSpot? So it's sort of a dual role where I play uh, MD of our international business, which is primarily aligning with our different functions and making sure we're thoughtful about our international expansion and ultimately solving for our local customers in each geography that we expand into. And then along with the MD part, I am uh, the SVP of our international sales team, which uh, fundamentally is um, responsible for new business outside North America, which uh, includes Latin America, Europe, and uh, Japan and Asia Pacific. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to actually start the show by rewinding all the way back to when you decided to go outside of North America. And my first question there is, why did Brian and Tharmesh choose you to lead the international expansion? It's going to require me to really jog my memory back like seven to eight years ago. So back in 2011, it was in one of my early years at HubSpot, we were generating a bunch of demand. As you guys know, we are the company that coined inbound. So we're all inbound and we were getting a bunch of demand, of course, from North America, but also from English-speaking countries uh, like the UK, uh, Benelux, Nordics. So I saw this demand come through and I asked Brian, hey, Brian, what should we do? And he suggested, well, why don't I start calling them? So that's exactly what I did is I started calling into our prospects in the UK and uh, things went quite well. And we decided to build uh, a small sales team out, uh, out of Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is where we are HQ'd. And I got a small team of about eight reps along with me who would show up in the office at about 4 or 5 a.m. And we got cranking and you know, things started picking up in terms of our UK business. And we got to a point whereby I couldn't hire any more folks to show up in the office at four o'clock because uh, in those days, most of my reps were primarily uh, young dads who wanted to get home by 2, 3 p.m., were okay starting at 5 a.m. They would get a chance to pick up their kids and have the evening uh, for themselves. And as you know, that's not exactly a very scalable strategy. But that's sort of like the early days when the advantage with inbound, which is what we've always had, is we had all this incredible demand coming through and we started calling into them and it clearly showed there was great product market fit. We got a small team up and running and that early team was primarily based in Cambridge. 
Got it. So you showed initiative and started doing this even before anyone told you to do it. And that made you probably a natural fit when they were looking for someone to lead it. Okay. Talk to me about the timing for expansion is so important. And if you get it wrong as a small startup with bootstrapped resources, it could do a lot of damage. So having now done this multiple times, what are some of the criteria companies should consider when to say, yep, you know what, now is the time to expand outside of my native country? For me, it's a lot about like, is the market pulling you in? And for us in those days, like in 2011, the market was pulling us in because our content was getting found in many parts of the world and lots of English-speaking countries in Europe. So that was our first sign that there is something here. The, The next sign for us was before we got a direct sales team up and running, we had a small partner team that would acquire partners in the UK and teach them on how to use HubSpot and then package and resell it to their prospects. And those partners were doing incredibly well. So the market was pulling us and partners were doing well. And as partners were doing well, that's when we got that small direct sales team up and running to call into demand that was coming to HubSpot.com directly. And what we saw was the conversion rate of that demand was as good as our conversion in North America. Our retention with those customers was quite healthy. So that showed that there was great product market fit. I'd say those were like the three early signs is marketing demand was sort of like showing like great growth. Partners were doing well. And when we would call prospects directly, our economics were quite favorable. That was sort of like, you know, like that first uh, aha moment, like, yep, this actually is going to work. So we should take our international expansion seriously. And that's when we started thinking about like, what does it mean to go international from a physical standpoint and not run our international uh, execution from Cambridge and Boston? And so now you've decided that you're going to go international and there's a lot of signs to show that this is a a good strategy to execute on. How did you decide on what countries to focus on? So if you think about Europe, right, there's countries, there's cities, there's regions that are speaking similar languages. So how did you think about mapping Europe and how did you think about expanding into Europe? So we think about expansion from like almost like three phases and... For us, it's been like our first phase was like developed English markets. Then we went to developed non-English and then thirdly into emerging markets. So when we decided like in back in 2011 that it's time to go international, we had, we had sort of like said, okay, that first phase is what we need to nail, which is developed English markets. And... We had leverage from our content because it was all English. It was getting found in lots of developed English markets. And we would look at that content by country and it would come from the UK, our countries in Benelux, Nordics. So we were like, all right, we've got this engine already working from a demand standpoint. So how do we like capitalize on that demand? So that was sort of like the first decision is it's all going to be focused on the English speaking parts of Europe. And the next decision was, well, what's the best location for us to launch in Europe so we can successfully go after all these English speaking countries in Europe? And we did a bunch of research uh, 
around the launching location. We looked at Amsterdam, Dublin, London. And through a fairly uh, math and science-based approach, we had like uh, an actual grid where we scored each city from a, a talent standpoint, from a, a language proficiency standpoint, from a cost uh, perspective, and also, you know, what level of scale can we achieve in that city? Because when we decided we were going to go international, we knew the opportunity is going to be big, and we didn't want to shortchange this by trying to do a tiny satellite office. We decided we were going to launch the hub. It's going to be our international HQ, which is why we looked at like tier one cities like London, Amsterdam, and Dublin. And through that fairly uh, quantitative uh, analysis over a one-year period, uh, which went from 2011 to 2012, we made a decision to uh, go with Dublin. Now, the other advantage, maybe more on the uh, qualitative side, is around that time, 2012, early 2013, we had uh, hired our president. His name uh, is J.D. Sherman. And J.D. had a very successful stint with uh, Dublin during his time at Akamai. So we were like 95% there with the uh, scientific approach on picking Dublin. <laughs> and J.D. kind of like made that 5% easier when we were still sort of like it's our first office. It's going to be some level of healthy debate. Why not London? Right. Why not Amsterdam? Uh, well, the data is saying Dublin is the best option. And then JD came in and made it easy on that final 5%. And that's when we got going with Dublin as our European, in those days, our international HQ. And in looking back, would you say that worked out the, the right decision? Absolutely. I mean, the European operation today is uh, over 800 people. Of course, now they are all virtual and remote across different parts of Europe where we have entities. It does a fairly large percent of our monthly number. It's from an international standpoint, the Dublin operation is our largest contributor from a, a global revenue standpoint, of course, outside North America. So I'd say uh, we nailed that decision with Dublin. There are a few decisions that, you know, when I look back and say, wow, those were like game-changing, truly needle-moving decisions for HubSpot played a fairly important role towards us from those early days in 2012, 2013 to being a, a publicly traded company. I would put Dublin and international expansion in those top three. Yeah, absolutely. I've watched HubSpot grow and it's, it, it's amazed me how well they have grown systematically and consistently. I think that's the key is the consistency of the growth. Okay, so having now done this international expansion multiple times, you probably now have a playbook for launching a new country. Could you walk me through your process for launching into a new country? Like what are sort of the steps you would do? A couple of what I would call like buckets of things that need to be done to successfully enter. And the first bucket would be people. And, you know, if I jog my memory back to those Dublin days, when we launched Dublin, it was me like as an expat moving to Dublin first employee on the ground, and I took four other expats with me. And our first wave of hires was about four, four or five employees. 
So it was a fairly sizable investment whereby you can essentially see we did this one-to-one mapping of expat to local hire. Every local hire, basically in that group of four or five local hires, had an expat that they were buddied and partnered with. Hmm. And it was a fairly uh, involved decision with our finance team and our CFO because it's expensive to move a a small uh, army of expats. But we knew that one of the things that makes HubSpot special is really our culture. And we had decided if we're going to do something big in Europe, we need to get the culture right. And a large part about getting the culture right is having the behaviors that align with what we call like heart, uh, which is humble, empathy, adaptable, remarkable, transparent. And the other part is like a high performing culture. We have a high performing culture. And the way to get that right is not to hope that you can make a few hires. They'll figure it out on their own and they'll create this world-class engine on their own. You really need to partner with them. You need to give them the right support, give them the right surround sound. So we decided, all right, we're going to do this one-to-one mapping. And uh, we knew if we get this right, this first wave of four or five hires will do two things for us. One is if they're successful, they're going to go and tell other peers at Salesforce, Google, Facebook, that, hey, like HubSpot is a place to be because I am doing incredibly well from a performance standpoint. That sort of like gets the word out in a smallish community like Dublin, whereby the tech community is well connected. And the other reason we did this one-to-one mapping is we knew we were going to get big and we knew we were going to need a lot of leaders, a lot of managers, a lot of directors. So if we got that first wave right, we were going to bet that many of the first wave of hires will be managers and directors for us someday. And that's exactly what has played out is in the first wave of four hires, three are still with us. This is seven years later. Uh, And three of them are a mix of managers and directors running fairly large teams in Europe for us today. If I think about a CFO, I can't see him being convinced by culture alone. So like you said, moving four people and giving them expat packages to a place where you saw some inbound presence is still quite a bit of an investment. So what did it take for you to convince the CFO? The one big advantage uh, or rather one big thing that we will get in place is we showed a bunch of success from Cambridge with a small team. Yes, they show up at 4 a.m., but they were still able to execute and actually win as good as a rep that was doing an eight to five job, for example. Their productivity was as good, maybe even at times higher because there's a bit of a blue ocean in Europe and there was a lot of demand coming through. So for the CFO, it was like, this is interesting because you can show me that if we generate X leads, you're converting them at about the same, maybe even slightly better than the rate in North America. And it's happening through inbound. So let's invest in the demand gen side so we can get more of the demand. Because if you get the demand, we have that funnel fairly well defined. So that made it a lot more easier for our CFO. The other piece we did is we didn't think about this as a one-year plan. We did a true three-year plan. And we showed the model over three years. Yep. In the first one to two years, it is going to be uh, tough from an investment and a revenue standpoint. 
But just like any uh, well-run SaaS business, it will compound. So we could see like, wow, three years into it, this could be a 75 to 100 person operation, potentially five to six uh, teams of eight to nine uh, quota carrying reps in each team. And that's when it gets really interesting. Yeah, that's what we did on the modeling front, looking at the three-year plan, showing that the inbound engine does work. And this was all, again, from an English language standpoint. We also knew that we need to get the leadership right. And we were sending a strong team between me and a couple of other managers that we, we sent. We had proven ourselves out in North America. So sort of like, okay, the demand is there. Okay, the market is pulling us in. We have shown the conversion rates are right. So the market is just not pulling us in, but you can monetize this demand. And you're sending a small expat team that has proven they can win. So you had all the right elements in place, you know, people, market, proven execution. So this was like, all right, if something goes wrong, it wasn't because we didn't think about all the main variables. We got all the right variables thought through. This has got to work as long as you know we are going to execute day in and day out. Right. So once you got to Ireland, how did you move from there to other countries? What was your strategy? Do you have a playbook for when you said, okay, now we're going to go after the dark region? Yep. yep. So we've got Dublin up and running. The goal was, okay, Dublin is going to help us go into all English-speaking Europe, but also one advantage with Dublin, which is why we picked it, is because it has a fairly good multilingual talent base. Mm. We made a couple of hires uh, to go after Doc since, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Germany. We got one rep to start calling into some of the demand we were getting through inbound. The advantage, again, with inbound, like when I look back in those days about... 50% of our German demand was coming through folks finding us on our English engine. Wow. And this was in the early days. And we were like, okay, we have some demand coming in. Let's, let's get a rep to go after that demand. But it wasn't a whole lot. And we, we realized fairly quickly, like, we need to pause because... Well, there's demand coming through. The conversion was not as great as our English demand. Mm. And the lesson we learned, or, you know, the advantage of inbound was the English engine was really good for the UK, Benelux Nordics. So before we accelerated with sales hiring from Dublin to call into Germany, we just talked with that one rep and we said, we're not going to go fast with sales hiring until we get the German engine up and running with German content. Got it. So one of the first hires in marketing was actually a content creator to launch our, our German blog, which uh, is probably one of the best performing blogs uh, from a B2B standpoint in DAC today. But we knew that, okay, this is going to be, you know, an investment like in inbound, you got to like commit a bunch of time towards. It. So we spent during those days, almost 18 months with the two or three content creators generating content on our German blog until we could get demand to a point where we said, okay, we can start putting our foot on the gas with hiring German sales reps in Dublin. One lesson we learned along that way is when we were 
generating content for the German blog, we were doing a bunch of like translation of our English content into German. Uh, right. That worked to some extent, but the conversion was not that great because a straight translation loses the context that you need to localize for your German prospects and customers. So we ended up doing a mix of some translation, but then we indexed over time towards more native content. That was another really nice step up in our conversion when we saw, okay, when we did more native content, the conversion of that native content now caught up to our English content. And that was sort of like that formula where we looked at any time when we were ready to create a blog post, we would say, okay, is the topic uh, relevant? Okay, if it's relevant, can we do a straight translation? And if you do a straight translation, does it get found on the right keywords on Google? If it doesn't, then we say, okay, we will not do a straight translation. We would have our team do a bunch of native content. So that's how we got that English engine partly helping us on the uh, German side. But over time, the German team led with more than the marketing side to get that German engine cranking before we started hiring on sales and customer success. And this was also, again, based out of Ireland. So you hired content marketers with a German language skill in Ireland to start producing content. You did that for about 18 months and started seeing more demand and better conversion on that content. And then you started hiring more reps than that one person you had. That's right. And is that kind of the formula that you did for other regions That's as been, well? That's uh, the formula for pretty much most of our, maybe all our non-English markets. Uh, including Latin America and uh, Japan. To add a bit more to the point you mentioned, which is interesting, Anita, is like we did all this from uh, Dublin, again, because it has like awesome multilingual talent. And 18 months into that journey, we were like, all right, this is great work. Like we have predictability. We can predictably hire reps with that German demand. We started adding sales reps. German-speaking sales reps, generally native speakers in Dublin. And that journey went on for probably another 12 to 18 months where we were scaling potentially like two full German-speaking sales teams based in Dublin. And the same thing with support and customer success. But we did get to a bit of a roadblock in terms of scaling from Dublin because I think about our entry into a country is sort of like a two by two. On one side, you have demand. And the other side, you have talent. If you have great demand, and you can find talent, like in this case, German speakers in Dublin, keep going, keep going. It's sort of like you're on the top right. Uh, of course, if you're in the, in the bottom right, where you have low demand, and you have a ton of talent, that's not exactly very useful because you need to fix your demand engine. And before you go and open a German office, which can be quite expensive, let's fix the German demand from one of your HQs like Dublin or Cambridge before you open an office in Germany. So in this case, we got demand up and running from Dublin, but we got to a roadblock where we were struggling to find German speakers in Dublin. It's a good market for multilingual talent, but you're also competing with other players who are looking for exactly the same type of talent. Right. And we looked at our time to hire, say, for a sales rep, 
went from potentially X months to X plus 20%. That time to hire got elongated where there's an opportunity cost when you can't like go after all your demand. So that's when we said, okay, it's time to open our second international office, which was eventually going to end up becoming Berlin. And we went through a whole quantitative approach to determine between Berlin, Frankfurt, Munich, just like how we did Dublin, Amsterdam, and London. Interesting. And uh, we picked Berlin because we got to that roadblock and we needed to move the dial to open supply of talent for the demand, which was starting to like compound, which is the beauty of inbound. Well, we talked about talent a lot, and obviously that's so critical to making any geo successful. So how does hiring differ across geos, Europe, Asia, Australia? What should people keep in mind as they're thinking about expanding across those geos? Good question. And there's sort of like a baseline that we follow uh, where were we hire and, you know, comprises and, you know, I'll use an example of a, a sales rep, like there are a set of skills and attributes that we look for. And then we also compare against our cultural code, which I mentioned is heart, like have they got the right behaviors that they can demonstrate through past experience against the skill attributes and heart. The one or a couple of differences as we went from like Dublin to Berlin to say the extreme example of Tokyo or Japan is individuals like in this case reps operate differently from one country to the other like in germany they don't have as high of an inside sales culture as they have say in dublin or in london or in boston they're a bit more enterprise a bit more field type uh, culture so early days of berlin when hiring in berlin there would be some concerns or objections. Can you actually sell over the phone? And we had to teach these reps, you have to rethink what selling means. Selling doesn't mean pushing product. It means being more of an advisor, doing more of a a discovery-based approach. So you're not selling what the prospect wants, but rather really needs in terms of solving their business goals and challenges. So there was some level of education that we had to do during the onboarding with reps as we went from Dublin to Berlin and Tokyo. The other piece, you know, the difference between countries is uh, business acumen. Is hmm. their model that we have is we go and sell through the partners and we also sell to customers that are the direct customers. At times, we bring them together and partners, of course, help us win with uh, customers and they also win with their own prospects. So we had to change our grading when it comes to things like business acumen, because in some geos, we would have to spend more time on the business acumen side to help them understand what does it mean uh, when you're selling to uh, a marketing agency versus selling to uh, a CMO or a VP of sales. Hmm. That would be one big difference. Uh, The other I would add is we have gone from uh, geo to geo. Being a a U.S. US headquartered company, there's definitely a level of intensity and level of drive that comes with being a a Western company. And we appreciated and respected that the way we are 
is not the way people are going to be in every country that we enter. We did have that baseline of skills and attributes. We had to rethink what some of the answers to testing against skills and attributes would mean in Japan versus Germany. So we would not be comparing a person in Germany didn't give us a great answer if we were comparing them to a U.S. rep. We would want to compare them to what does it mean to be like a German rep or a Japanese rep, which is why when we thought about the hiring panel, one of our first hires always when entering a, a country is usually a local recruiter someone who understands the market, Mm. understands how people think, how people sell service market. And that recruiter would educate uh, the hiring team, which would usually come from Cambridge or Dublin. So we would be thoughtful about how would we calibrate those skills and attributes when making this hiring decision. And how about sales? Did that differ by geography in terms of direct versus indirect, inbound and outbound? We're primarily uh, inbound driven. The bulk of our prospecting happens through, you know, like qualified leads and uh, non-QLs. Qualified leads get handed over to our sales team. Non-qualified leads continue to get nurtured until they trip over to being a QL. The one thing that I will add is, as we went from those English markets to non-English, whether developed or emerging, we did take more of a partner approach. We wanted to first get the partner engine up and running because the partners understandably are our feet on the ground. They help us understand the market better. They help us understand what needs to be localized. They help us think about what is the brand that we have in Germany or Japan and what would be those investments we would need to make to make our partners successful. And also eventually when we set up a local presence to support our local partners and of course our customers. So those non-English regions definitely had more of a a lead by partner approach, whereas the English engine... uh, Well, partners always have played a critical role. They play a critical role today and into the future. We were able to take a almost like a go at the same time with partner and our direct sales team. Got it. How did you find the right partners? The bulk of our early partners came through inbound and we have this whole track for partners and how you go from projects to uh, recurring revenue streams. And uh, they convert and that's how we get to know of them. And of course, over time, we've gotten more sophisticated whereby we're looking for partners of a certain profile. We're a bit more targeted in terms of what gets rotated to a sales thread before we reach out to them. I see. But that would be like an advice I would give to any CEO who is thinking of international is take product, uh, a customer view. Where are these customers? What do they need? And then think about like, how do you get your marketing funnel or your flywheel cranking? And you can get your flywheel, your marketing engine going from wherever you are today before you actually set up shop, which can be an expensive investment. Uh, Sort of like before you put a flag in an office, make sure you have demand that the team that you hire can take and convert and monetize quickly. Yeah, no, that's solid advice. How did the executives and investors measure the success of an expansion? Obviously, I know revenue is big, but if you think about the early days before the revenue has really started kicking in, is there any guidance you would give to CEOs? Yeah, great question. I would advise every CEO to uh, take a long-term view with international expansion. There's definitely a 
incredible payback as we have seen at HubSpot, but it takes a, a thoughtful approach and you want to give it the right one way. Uh, it, is hard. it is hard work, but it can work out incredibly well. When you look at the S&P 500 the companies that make up the S&P 500, I forget what the most current stat is, but when I saw that about a year ago, 40 to 45% of most S&P 500 companies generate uh, their revenue from outside North America. So it's fairly large. Mm -hmm. Now, with that said, and that long-term view, I will also encourage every CEO to take the culture part seriously. Mm -hmm. So when we got Dublin up and running, one of the things that we committed, and we still do it to a large extent today when we open a new office, is we let the local team know that one week per month, you should expect an executive from HubSpot's executive team to be on the ground with you. Hmm. And it may feel sometimes overwhelming, like, wow, they're back again. No, month later, that's okay. Don't worry about our time because what we want to do as the executive team is we want to support the local team. Uh, hmm. And, you know, when we would do this in the days of Dublin, like JD, for example, he would show up uh, in Dublin or Brian Halligan would show up in Dublin, including Darmesh. They would just go grab a desk. And part of their role over there is they will be working in the midst of the front line. Uh, folks would walk up to them, ask them questions. They would ask them, how are you guys thinking about the future in Dublin or in Berlin? That authentic connection played mm -hmm. a huge role in terms of our culture. And, you know, when you're fast growing... Like in the early days in Dublin, I would be running around everywhere as needed to help all teams. But JD O'Brien would pick up certain details that, you know, sometimes I like that final 10% that they would yeah. at me and say, hey, here's what I observed. Uh, and they would leave it with me what I wanted to do about it. But they would give me those important nuggets yeah. and help me make sure we weren't missing something on the culture front. Uh, we do that still today. And of course, right now, obviously, travel isn't possible. But uh, that's one piece of advice I would give CEOs and their executive team is to take the uh, local engagement, plan for it, invest in it. Because if you get the people and the culture aspect right, uh, they'll stick around for the long term. They will overperform for you. And hmm. the other question you asked me, Anita, is around the, the metrics. And in the early days, we took a funnel-based approach, which is we looked at demand, customers, expansion of those customers, and ultimately shows up in two numbers, which is uh, LTV to CAC, which is lifetime value to a cost of acquiring a customer. And uh, in the early days, a CEO would look at LTV to CAC and say, wow, the CAC is high the LTV isn't as high to warrant an investment. And that could be a mistake because your CAC is going to be high when you're investing to seed and grow the market. And until you have enough of an install base that can expand and buy your other products that will show up on the revenue retention side. So that would be something I would recommend mm. is you, you should pick the right metrics like LTV to CAC but you should also think about the time horizon you want to measure it. So in the early days, our altitude of CAC was not as good as North America, but over time, it got really good. In fact, our altitude of CAC in Europe is one of the best globally. 
The other that we look at is what we call a net new ARR growth. Uh, so between those two numbers, they were like important indicators whether things are going well. And it's a little bit of a lagging indicator, right? Uh, mm -hmm. On the leading side, we have obviously from a HubSpot standpoint, we've gone from a funnel to a flywheel. Folks can check out the flywheel on HubSpot's website, but the flywheels attract engaged delight. We think about attract, okay, is our content generation efforts in German resulting in sufficient traffic and qualified leads? Mm. Uh, then we look at the engaged part of the flywheel. Are the QLs converting into customers? And we look at delight. Do those customers buy more products? What is our expansion dollar with those customers? So we could look at each of those leading indicators. And if something is broken, for example, let's just say delight is not as great, then you have a flywheel that has some friction in it. It's not spinning as fast as yeah. you want it to. So before you invest more, let's go and fix the the delight part and things we would have done in Germany is, for example, we got local support up and running, like German speaking uh, folks as opposed to providing our German customers English support. Most of them could get away and say, yep, I'll take it in English. But we know if you truly want to be a local trusted partner, you need support in German yeah. or you need ongoing customer success in German. So we made those investments to get that part of the flywheel to improve. So we've taken that fairly thoughtful approach to look at those leading indicators, make those investments, and over time spin the flywheel faster. That sounds like a thoroughly well thought out process, and I'm sure very valuable for people listening. What about if we look at the cost side? How did you budget for each new geo that you went into? A lot of it was demand driven for us. So, for example, with Germany or even with France, where we're growing fast now. We proved out the model from Dublin before we entered Germany. We actually proved out the Dublin for the model for France from Dublin before we opened Paris. So yep. I would encourage CEOs to think about their line item on the marketing investment side and see if they can get a good sense of how that marketing investment is turning into ROI. That's one piece. The other, from a cost standpoint, uh, a large part of our cost is people. So mm. rather yep. than get a full operation up and running across every team, what we have done is take a hub and spoke approach. So we kept the cost in our hub like Dublin because, okay, you left customer success and support for Germany and France and Dublin first. Most of your cost was, okay, we're running into a bottleneck with hiring sales talent in Dublin. Let's open an office in Berlin. We went through a process to pick Berlin, then hire local sales reps in Berlin. Prove that out from a cost standpoint before you put more of an investment by, for example, hiring local support and local customer success and local marketing all based in Berlin. Take it through a phased approach sort of like your go-to-market goes through a few different phases. If you decide as a CEO, okay, I'm first going to lead with partners. Can you get your partner engine up and running from your HQ? Then if you want to go from partner to direct, okay, how much of your direct engine can you support from your HQ before you open a local office? 
then okay, there's direct that you open in your local office, then you get all the surround sound up and running. So it's sort of like incremental investments that happen over a multi-year approach. So you don't go in and say, I'm going to do everything on day one. It's high risk. It's high investment. It's also fairly challenging for a small team to be able to pull it off without having some early wins that they can build momentum on and expand from that point in time. Yeah, I think one of the things I find really interesting, G2, is because everything was inbound driven, even when you went to Ireland, you were seeing demand from lots of countries. And yet your approach was very systematic. Let's focus on the English speaking countries. Then let's focus on this. You didn't say, let's go where the opportunity takes us, which I think is a really smart idea. And one probably that a lot of startups have trouble with because revenue is so important and you see demand from any country, you want to go there quickly. So I think that's a really valuable lesson. Absolutely. If it helps to add one point on, and I think it'll help CEOs, the whole world is an opportunity. But where do you want to play? And your decision on where do you want to play will highly determine whether you can win or not. So when we decide where we want to play, including the countries we decide where we want to open offices, we take, again, a fairly scientific approach. We go through this process whereby we look at uh, opportunity. And there's short-term opportunity and there's long-term opportunity. And of course, the CFO wants to see like some short-term opportunity, but you also want to take a long-term view. So we think about like the addressable market that we call like TAM, total addressable market. Mm. So we think about like how much of that short-term opportunity or upside do we get? And also what is the long-term opportunity in a country? It's all under that Mm. opportunity umbrella. And the other part of this model that we look at is opportunity is great, but there's also complexity of addressing and winning in that opportunity. So for each country, we map out short-term opportunity, long-term addressable market. And then under complexity, we look at things like ease of doing business. Competition. We look at competition. We look at, you know, local uh, labor laws and the legal landscape. We look at the availability of talent and you really need to always transition these local operations to local leadership. How quickly can we get a local leader in place? So we go through anytime we decide on a big investment, we have this uh, annual planning process that we go through where we look at, okay, things are going well. Where is the next big bet we place? And we iterate on this model of opportunity, complexity. Each and every year, it's a fairly exhaustive spreadsheet that gets refreshed. It's got uh, your traffic light system and ultimately becomes very scientific on here are your top three opportunities. This is where you want to play. And here's really where you would maximize your chances to win. What's the short-term opportunity? How do you come up with that? First short-term opportunity is a little bit like, okay, we're proving out a model where we have six reps who are doing really well, but we have a bunch of demand that can support 10 reps, but we can't get to 10 reps because we can't hire them because of language. Okay, if we did open our office, we can easily get the four reps and we will see a lift through that short-term opportunity or that demand that is already there. 
Got it. So it's kind of like, okay. clearly there's a path of doing more than we're doing today. And do we want that upside by making that investment in a new office, for example? But a new office okay. is only a starting point, right? Like, we don't want right. to stop at 10 reps. Like, could we be, you know, 100 reps someday? So that's where the long-term opportunity comes into play. And there are a few different ways, Anita, to look at long-term opportunity. In the case of HubSpot, we think about like mid-market companies and each mid-market company, if they were a HubSpot customer, their average revenue per customer would be say X dollars. Simple math, number of mid-market companies, which is publicly available data times, you know, average revenue per customer gives you like the total opportunity. And then we say, okay, we are X percent penetrated. If we could get to Y percent, like we are in North America, this is the hundreds of millions that is truly addressable that we can go after. And in the recent past, we've started also buying data from IDC, where they look at the uh, spend across all of CRM that includes marketing, sales, customer success. And we do a scoring thing between uh, our analysis of TAM and uh, publicly uh, purchasable data to come up with a score on uh, that long-term opportunity. Really scientific. (laughs) Fantastic. Okay, if I think about when you started your international expansion, and maybe this is true for some of the geos you're still going after today, inbound and content marketing was so different. There weren't a lot of people doing it. So when you created this content, you were getting this inbound demand. My question is, do you think that would work if you started this today where everybody's doing so much content around whatever product they're selling? So that's one part of it. And then the second part is just in general, based on your experience of having done this now, what would you do differently today if you had to do it again? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll take that first question first, right? So I, I really think the inbound approach works and it works for all our customers today. I think the piece that CEOs and companies want to think about is a bit more like you can get demand, but what should be your go-to market to address that demand? And there are many companies that take more of a freemium or a product-driven approach, for example. You can get demand, like if you're based in the US, you can get demand from Europe or in Asia. But your go-to-market might be very product-centric, whereby you can monetize that demand from your existing presence in the U.S., but you get local presence up and running, maybe more for customer success and support. So demand is still going to work, inbound still works, but I would think about your go-to-market a lot more. There's a big difference between being partner-led, being direct-led. Which of those go-to-market motions do you want to lean into? In the case of HubSpot, we usually lead first with partners and our direct engine usually follows very closely like in the English markets or a little further out in the non-English markets. So I do think the inbound piece works. It's been, frankly, our secret sauce or our leverage as we've expanded. Uh, And I think from a CFO standpoint and from a finance standpoint, a more systematic and thoughtful way to take the right next steps without like swinging too hard when those investments can get really, really expensive. And the second question, Anita, on what would we do differently? A couple of things I would do differently. One, you know, if I go back to the people side, 
you don't want to be that expat team that launches and sticks around forever because then it feels like one it's always like HQ influenced. You want to give the local leaders, the local team, a chance to form their local culture. And a good measure of success is when you take a step back and see who is in your local office's executive team. Because we don't hire right and develop and give the right opportunities for folks you may never really get as close as possible to the customer because to get as close as possible to the customer, you need that local mindset. So it's taken me sometimes a fairly long period to find the right local leader. It took mm-hmm. me a while. In fact, I started looking for my local EMEA leader 12 months into my journey in Dublin. And I stayed in Dublin for three years. So it took me two years to find, hire, and uh, in some ways, fire myself to be at a point to say, I'm ready to leave because my local leader is ready to take over my spot. Yeah. So it takes time. I do think that founding team through that landing uh, team approach, that landing team comprises of expats has worked out really well for us. Uh, mm. But you want to transition that landing team to a local leadership team. And that takes that takes a while. So plan for it from the early days. That would be one. The other is don't underestimate the local culture. When we got Japan up and running, you could take the easy path and say, let's just do it the Dublin way. Let's do it the Berlin way. But Japan is a unique country, and I love Japan, but it has its own local ways of doing business. How Mm. buyers buy in Japan is very different from how they buy in Boston. So don't underestimate the, the local culture and the local differences. And if you don't underestimate it, then you will be careful about things like localization, your product. Do you have the right daytime format? Do your invoices take the right uh, approach of addressing your buyer with you know, the right salutation? You just don't call them by first thing. You address them with the right prefix, for example. We made some early, early missteps in the sense like, We didn't get that right off the gate in Japan, but we quickly realized because we trusted our local team and our local team told us you need to do X, Y, Z. And we took those recommendations to heart fairly quickly and with urgency. And we localized a bunch of our content and our product uh, uh, fairly quickly. The other would be emerging markets. You've got a lot of APAC that comprises of emerging, a lot of Latin America that Mm -hmm. comprises of uh, emerging. I will be thoughtful about that LTV to CAC because one of the things with emerging markets is you do need to localize your product from a a packaging and pricing standpoint. Or if your product doesn't need a change in terms of packaging and you decide to lead with a a USD type price point, you will likely need to discount to match the buying power of these emerging markets. So that LTV to CAC can be a bit challenging, the horizon can be longer, or it may never catch up to the levels you would consider as a gold standard for LTV to CAC. So you'd want to think about if you can dramatically change LTV to CAC, you would need to think about, well, where is your talent based? 
And because people is quite often your most expensive line item, how do you control that cost element for cash? Now, we've done incredibly well with Latin America, and we did quite well from, from a growth standpoint from Boston, but we got to a point where, you know, we could only get LTV to CAC to a certain level. And we said, okay, to really improve LTV to CAC, we need to open an operation in Latin America, and we picked uh, Bogota. And same process we went through, like analyzing Santiago versus Mexico City versus Bogota. We landed on Bogota. And in that case, cost was an important element. Talent is always important. It's at the same level. In many other cities, it's even more important. But, you know, as you think about emerging markets, think about your cost drivers and how far you'll be able to improve it from your existing locations versus having to change your go-to-market. Whereby your go-to-market may shift from, you know, sales heavy to product heavy, or you might decide you need salespeople, but then you'll either need to localize your product pricing or have your talent based in more local cities, if that makes sense. You basically use this ratio of LTV to CAC to determine what the packaging and pricing needs to be or what you need to shift to get the, the LTV to CAC that is acceptable to... Yeah. To the business. That's exactly okay. right. And there are a couple of elements under it. Like in our case, our platform works globally. So the product hasn't had to undergo any major changes. The one thing we did is we work with local integration partners who have built integrations that are more local to Japan or mm. local to Latin. For example, WhatsApp is very popular in Asia and in right. Japan. So they're like local integrations, but the core platform has been consistent. On the pricing front, we've we've primarily worked on currencies. We've localized from like you've got Colombian pesos or the Japanese yen. And from a go-to-market standpoint, there's some different levers we have like from our local cost standpoint, which is why we open an operation in Singapore or in Bogota to give us access to talent at a few different price points. Got it. But the, the pricing for your product across all the regions is the same. It's absolutely the same. It's just the currency that that's different. Currency and uh, we would have maybe local uh, discount levers that are available yeah. to the team. Got it. Asia is, I think, even more complicated from a cultural perspective and a language perspective than Europe. How have you tackled Asia? The approach has been similar to how we have tackled Europe from Dublin, whereby First phase is those English-speaking markets. So we launched Singapore to go after the English-speaking parts of Southeast Asia and India. So for example, you know, we're focused, of course, on Singapore, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Philippines, and of course, India, where you have some understandably local languages, but the vast majority of the market is very addressable, uh, especially with our target persona from uh, an English standpoint. So that's where we are this year, whereby there are certain target countries that are English speaking, uh, we're addressing from Singapore. And as we think about 2021 and beyond, we'll take a similar approach like whereby next phase of growth will be those non-English markets. So we'll think about other uh, countries where we will truly need to think of a, a local language. And this is where like we'll want to prioritize you know, which countries we prioritize in Europe and uh, JPAC. So back to the economics, you know, LTV to CAC, net new ARR, 
We'll use those numbers to decide do we place an investment or bet in some of these non-English markets in Asia. Got it. Okay, well, what's next for you, Jitu? You've done this now so many times. What's next for you? Are you going to keep going? <laughs> well, I traveled for seven years. We did seven offices in the last seven years. And I'm back in Boston about two years ago, and I'm still running our international business. And I think for me, a measure of like I've done okay is... Now we have local leaders in every local office and we trust them. They're awesome, they're incredible. And my role is more sort of behind the scenes. I'm working with the executive team, thinking about how do we continue to be that local partner to our customers and uh, our partner network? And how do we continue building like world-class culture in each of these offices? And I think things are going great. We are growing really, really fast outside the U.S. and... It's been an incredibly, for me, a satisfying journey to see so many of my hires are leaders in local offices. They have kids now. They've bought homes for themselves. So I'm excited about where my team and where I am today. So I'm going to keep oh, going. Wonderful. Wonderful, Gita. So a really quick rapid fire questions at the end. Nothing to do with HubSpot for one minute. What is some books that you've read that really made an impact? To you, fiction or nonfiction? I like all, all the books from Simon Sinek. I think, you know, like the whole Golden Triangle has been an important part as we have grown, making sure we get the why right. And uh, it's an important part of the expansion, making sure the local teams get the why so they can sort yeah. of like get on the boat with you and row in the same direction with you. So, yeah, I would say Simon, uh, Simon Sinek and anything that he writes is top of my mind. Okay. Okay. And what's your top tip for fighting jet lag? Because you travel so much. I figure you must have some tips uh, that you could probably... Two, two quick tips. Well, one is melatonin is always great for me. I do take a bunch of melatonin. And the other tip that I've gotten, I think now really good, not easy in the early days, is uh, as soon as I'll uh, get on a flight, I will change my uh, watch time to be the local time. So I'll mm. eat, sleep, like as I'm in the local time. So when I'm arriving that local city, I'm already in that zone. Nice. And have you moved with your family? Sorry, have you moved? I have. And my dog. Both my kids were in Dublin. My dog moved with me from uh, Boston to Dublin to Singapore. Wow. He's uh, he's a world traveler. How fantastic. There's a whole new, whole episode I could do just on (laughs) sort of the personal side, your experiences, funny things that you must have come across between cultures and business. But we're well out of time and I've kept you beyond the one hour that I typically have. So, but thank you so much, Jitu, for an absolutely information-packed and enlightening conversation. And I think everyone who listens to it is going to get so much. And thank you for sharing so much. Anytime, Anita. And hopefully I've encouraged a few CEOs to see the uh, true upside of international expansion.